Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad you decided to join us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and lifts you up. If you're looking for some more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. This past Friday night, um, we had the honor to be able to host a panel discussion on racial reconciliation, and it was a powerful, powerful night. I mean, um, I found myself personally just weeping at numerous points throughout the evening. The presence of God was super sweet in the conversation in the room. And um, if you missed it, I want to encourage you. I just really do uh, urge you to to go ahead and take some time, make some time to watch the video. It was recorded. It's posted on our church Facebook page. And I know you know how to find the church Facebook page because that's how you're watching this video. Gotcha. So if you missed it, please, I want to encourage you strongly to take the time uh, to go to that video and watch it. I think that you'll be blessed. Part of the reason why Friday night was so powerful is because something was missing. That's right. There was something missing from the evening that contributed to what made it so special. The thing that was missing was self-righteousness. There was a humility that was in the room that was palpable. We came together as God's people genuinely just seeking his heart all on the same page. Self-righteousness is that tendency in all of us that tries to justify myself, justify my actions, and make myself right. That's the name, self-righteous. And so I, I end up building my case, and I find my Bible verses, and I get my excuses and my justifications. I, I get it all together, you know, like a good lawyer, and I, and I justify myself. And so now I... I'm right. And what happens when we do that is this. We invariably find other people who feel the same way that we do, and now we create an us and a them. So now here's us. We all have the right perspective. This is us. We, we've justified ourselves in this, and they don't have the same revelation. So now there's us and there's them. There's we and there's they. There's me and there's you. And as long as self-righteousness exists, the argument continues. But the moment that self-righteousness goes away, the argument ends. That's why the title of this morning is How to Stop an Argument. Get rid of self-righteousness, the argument goes away. Get rid of self-righteousness, welcome in humility, and now you can begin to have people come together and find common ground and to work something out. Have you ever noticed our tendency as people, when we uh, replay the tapes in our own minds, when we replay our failures in our own minds, that we tend to either portray ourselves as the noble hero who who really tried to do the right thing and it it just didn't work out. Or we portray ourselves as the helpless victim who I I, could have done the right thing, but the circumstances just 
just didn't allow it. And I, there's, there's some great examples in the Bible. Let me show you what I mean. So Adam and Eve, classic. Genesis chapter 3. Two perfect people living in a perfect world, perfect relationship with God. God tells them not to eat this certain fruit. Adam and Eve, they rebelled against God. They sinned against God. They made the choice to eat this fruit that was forbidden. And then they brought sin into the world with that. God confronts them. What do they do? They play the helpless victim card. Adam says, God, that woman. And then God looks at Eve. Eve says, God, that serpent. They Blame each other. It's as if Adam's is say, it's as if they're saying, God, you know, I totally wouldn't have eaten the fruit, God, but that woman you gave me. And she says, God, I totally wouldn't have eaten that fruit, but that serpent, boy, is he tricky. Or here's another example. We've got Abraham. Or not Abraham, I'm sorry. He's next. We got, we got Aaron. Aaron's the older brother of Moses. And Moses has to go up on the top of Mount Sinai to meet with God for a few days. And it's up there that he gets the Ten Commandments. But while he's up there meeting with God, Moses leaves Aaron in charge of the people of Israel. While Moses is meeting with God, Aaron and the people of Israel rebel against God. They actually take all their jewelry, melt it down, and they make a golden calf, and they start worshiping it. Moses comes down from his big meeting with God. He's got the Ten Commandments in his hands. He comes down, and he's horrified by what he sees. He confronts Aaron on what's happening, and Aaron plays the helpless victim card. Moses, you know how rebellious these people are. These people are tough ones. Wow, Moses. As if to say, you know, if they were better people, I would be a better leader. <laughs> and besides Moses, all we did, we just put the gold in the fire and out popped this golden calf miraculously. I don't know. It's just, he plays the, instead of taking responsibility, instead of Aaron saying, you know, Moses, I was wrong. You know, Moses, I completely caved to the people's pressure. Instead of saying that, he's plays the helpless victim card, replays it in his mind, justifies his own actions. On the other hand, you've got some people that like to play the noble hero card. I tried to do the right thing, and it just blew up in my face. Here's Abraham. He's a great example of that. Abraham is married to Sarah, and Abraham and Sarah were nomads. And so they're traveling around from place to place, and they find themselves at one point in the territory that's ruled by a prince named Abimelech. And so Abraham lies about his wife, Sarah. He says, she's not my wife, she's my sister. As a result, Sarah gets taken into Abimelech's harem. So Abraham completely puts his wife at risk. Think about it. What a dirty guy. He takes, he literally causes, I mean, he puts his wife in a compromising position where her integrity and her, and her, her honor as a woman are, you know, are completely at risk. I mean, he was a bad move on Abraham's part. When he gets confronted, when the ruse was discovered, Abraham plays the noble hero card. Well, I knew what godless people you were. And I just knew it. I knew that if I was to tell you the truth, that you would kill me and take my wife instead. So that's why I had to do what I did. Here's another example. You got 
King Saul, he's maybe the best one of the noble hero. King Saul, he's a new king. He's leading the people of Israel. He's the first king of the nation of Israel. And he has to work in tandem with the prophet Samuel. And so Saul has his role. Samuel has his role. Saul is leading the army, and they're about to go into battle. And before they go into battle, one of the things that they had to do is they had to offer a sacrifice. Kind of a, you know, let's stop. Let's get the blessing of God as we move forward. In order for that to happen, Samuel had to make the sacrifice. That's the proper way to do it. Well, Samuel's like my wife, he was late. And Saul's like me, he was impatient. And so Saul decides he's gonna go ahead and make the sacrifice. He makes the sacrifice. And I probably just got in trouble for that statement, but it's okay, she loves me. So Saul, go ahead, he goes ahead and he makes the sacrifice. And, he, and Samuel comes in. And Saul plays the noble hero card. Saul says, well, Samuel, if you hadn't have been late, if you hadn't have been late, I wouldn't have done what I did. And, and by the way, they were starting to scatter. The men were getting afraid. I mean, somebody has to step up and lead, Samuel. And I'm the king, gotta lead, so here I am. He plays the noble hero card. Instead of owning up to his wrong, he justifies himself and plays the noble hero card. Do you see how that works? We either tend to play that role or we play the helpless victim role, but why is it we are so hesitant to actually take responsibility for our own actions? Why is it that we run from that and seek instead to justify ourselves? You see, this is what self-righteousness does. I make myself right. And what we typically do, self-righteousness goes along with, in tandem with, judgmentalism. Because we judge others in order to justify ourselves. See, if you're worse than I am, therefore I'm okay. And yet, Romans chapter 2, verse 1, completely calls us out on the carpet with regards to this. Because Romans chapter 2, verse 1, basically says this. Those of you who judge others, you're guilty of doing the same things that you judge them for. Ouch. But you see, we don't see that. Why don't we see that? Well, we don't see that because I'm blinded by my own self-righteousness. I've spent so much time building the case and justifying why I'm right and why my position is right and why what I do is right that I can't really see the way that I'm judging other people. I'm just locked in this. And as long as we're locked in this, friends, we continue the argument. But as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, we actually have the ability to let go of self-righteousness. See, the reason why the world maintains self-righteousness is because, well, what else are you gonna do? When you look at your failures and you feel the shame and the remorse and the guilt of your failures, I mean, they're too great. And so self-righteousness is the only way that the world has to be able to deal with that in order to kind of keep themselves sane. But as followers of Jesus Christ, we have an entirely different way to live, don't we? Because we know that Jesus 
paid on the cross with his very life. He paid for my sins. He paid for my failures. And so I don't actually have to live in the shame and the guilt of those failures anymore because God has forgiven me. And the message that we have as Christians to the world is this, that if the cross of Jesus Christ is powerful enough to reconcile us with God, that it's powerful enough to reconcile us with one another. That the greatest, the most, the biggest irreconcilable relationship in the history of the universe was the one between God and us. And God fixed it. Thank you, Jesus. God fixed it. And because of that, you and I no longer have to be self-righteous. I can actually, Jesus gives me the ability to, to actually look at my mess and say, yeah, that was a bad day. <laughs> I'm so thankful for the forgiveness and the grace and the price that Jesus paid to make me right. You see, that's why you and I as followers of Jesus Christ are uniquely positioned in this world to be able to bring this good news that we don't have to justify ourselves. I can actually look at where, what's wrong, deal with it. We can come together on it, start working on it. So I want to ask you a question. Do you, do you see how self-righteous you are? I don't, and I don't mean that like in a judgmental way because we all are. That's, we're all self-righteous. That's not, <laughs> myself included. Do you see it? Do you see how you are self-righteous? Um, you say, well, how? I don't even know how I could do that. How could I see that? Well, Jesus told us a story, and it's found in Luke chapter 18, and it's a brilliant story that exposes our self-righteousness, and, and it leaves us with a choice that we get to make at the end. And so if you would please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. I'll start with verse 9. While you're looking that up, let me just give Jesus some kudos, okay? Because Jesus is a brilliant teacher. Come on, can we get an amen for that? Jesus is a brilliant teacher. Like, I would challenge anybody to tell a story that makes a moral point and then have that story stand the test of time, culture, and language. And yet that's exactly what Jesus did over and over and over and over again. Like, the stories, the parables, the teachings of Jesus, he told them 2,000 years ago. And here we are living in a different time, different language, different culture, and the stories of Jesus still preach to this day. Like, that's a testimony to how brilliant Jesus is as a teacher. And this story is the creme de la creme in terms of how Jesus designed the story to reveal this thing that's deep in your heart and my heart like it is powerful in the way that it exposes you and me. So let's take a look at it, okay? You're like, oh, this is going to be fun. I'm about to be exposed. <laughs> yes, it's going to be great. It starts with verse 9. Verse 9 says, verse 9 says this, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Stop right there. That tells you who he's talking to. My Bible says he's talking to people who were confident of their own righteousness. 
Your Bible actually might even use the word self-righteous. That's found in some of the translations. So right away, we know who it is Jesus is talking to. So heads up, he's about to tell a story that makes a point to people like you and me who are self-righteous. Here's the story. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Thank you, God. You're doing a good work in me. Thank you. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will will be exalted. So Jesus tells a story, and, and he picks two characters who couldn't be further apart on the social spectrum. You've got a Pharisee and a tax collector. The Pharisee, of course, would be the, the best of the best. He, he would be a religious man, a good man. Pharisees had, had a stellar reputation in the community, and they very much prided themselves in that reputation. On the other end of that spectrum, you have a tax collector, a Jewish person who collected taxes for the Roman government. It wasn't that he collected taxes, although nobody likes to pay taxes, but what made them worse was he was a Jewish man who worked for the Romans, and remember, Rome was oppressing the Hebrews at this point. So it's like you're working for the other team, and completely not cool, so everybody hated tax collectors. So Jesus takes these two people, Pharisee, tax collector, and he has these two men, and they come into church together. They come into the temple together to pray. The Pharisee is just so grateful for all that God has done in his life, and boy, God, you've done such a marvelous work in me. Aren't I great? I'm so glad, God, that you, know, you have shown me the good ways. You've just... You know, you've just shown me the right way to go, and thank you, God. I, you know, I'm so glad I'm not like other people. Wow. And then you have the tax collector who can't even make it a few steps into the sanctuary before he face plants on the floor and cries out to God and asks for mercy because he's a sinner. Now, the question that we have to ask is, with whom do you identify in this story. If you're like me, you would say that you identify with the tax collector. I mean, that's me, I'm that guy. I'm just that guy, I'm that humble guy, like I just want to press into the Lord. You know, I just want more of the Lord. I, I know that I've done wrong and I just need more of God. Like, like the tax collector, he's totally my guy. I mean, I know I'm totally not the Pharisee. I'm not like the Pharisee. That guy's a jerk. And the moment 
that I cross that line, I've just been exposed as being the Pharisee. Look at what the Pharisee says again in verse 11. I'm glad that I'm not like other men. So the moment that I read myself into this story and I say, I'm just like the tax collector, I'm humble and I'm not like that guy, Jesus got me. <laughs> Jesus is just exposed. I am a self-righteous Pharisee because I'm saying I'm not like the Pharisee and in saying I'm not like the Pharisee I am like the Pharisee do you see what self-righteousness does self-righteousness pits us against one another I God I, I I'm just so glad that you have shown me I have all these great things that you have done I mean here's all the Bible verses here's all the reasons why I'm right and notice something else about the Pharisee. Verse 11 says that he stood. You see what that says? It says he stood how? Stood. How did he stand? Verse 11. He stood by himself. Oh, he's right. Oh, yeah, he's right. He's got all kinds of Bible verses to back up why he's on the right side. <laughs> and he's totally alone. That's what self-righteousness does. It isolates us from one another. It separates, it divides us from one another. Oh, I'm completely right, but I'm also by myself. And here's the tax collector in humility, bowing before the Lord, God, I'm a sinner. God, have mercy on me, God. The tax collector, who's he looking at? He's not comparing himself to anybody else. There's no, I'm this and they're that. It's this man before Almighty God, and his sin is exposed, and he says, God, I need your mercy, God. I, I am calling out for your mercy, God. I'm not expecting anybody else to do anything for me. I'm not comparing myself to anybody else, God. I am a sinner, and I need your mercy. And Jesus says, that's the guy who walks away with an encounter with God. And I would say that that's what happened here on Friday night in that panel on racial, racial reconciliation. That the, the air, the atmosphere in this house was one of humility. Self-righteousness is gone. We are people coming together, broken people coming together, seeking the heart of God so that we can seek a solution to this problem together. See, it's powerful. The Holy Spirit loves humility. Like he sees a group of people who have humbled themselves together and the Holy Spirit just jumps all over that. Oh man, he's completely in favor of that kind of people and they get God's blessing. But the people that stand in self-righteousness with their own justification, with all of their verses and all of their rationale and all of their principles and all of their points, why I'm right, why everybody else is missing the boat, those people, friends, stand alone. And the fight continues and the argument never stops. Oh, friends. You say, but, but wait a second. But like, where's the place? Like, aren't we supposed to call out evil and injustice? Like, aren't, 
Isn't that supposed to happen? I mean, you can't just turn a blind eye to, to bad things. I mean, at, what, at some point, I have to stand up and call it out. And for that, we go to Romans chapter 12, verse 9. You're right. Romans chapter 12, verse 9, it says, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. So right there, you see that a decision does have to be made. We need to, here's evil, hate it. Here's good, embrace it. So to be able to do that, I have to call evil, evil, and good, good. You're right. So there does come an appropriate point where we've got to call it out for what it is. Oh, but don't overlook the first statement. Love must be sincere. Love must be sincere. See, love, we, we call out evil, we call out good, it's done in love. And by the way, we have totally screwed up love in our culture. We've, we've so lowered the standard of what love actually looks like and is, we don't even know what it is anymore. So here's a heads up, next Sunday morning, plan to talk about love. It's going to blow your socks off. How do I know that? Well, because mine are getting blown off as I study. So if I'm, my world is rocked, I'm pretty sure your world will be rocked. We'll all get rocked together. That's next Sunday. But it says love must be sincere. That word sincere is actually a compound word. It's a Latin word. Two words, sin, serious. Sin meaning without, serious meaning wax. See, nowadays, people that do pottery, they do it as a craft, or you use pottery as a decoration of some sort. But in ancient times, pottery had common household uses. They used them every day in their everyday lives. And so the work of a potter was very important. And, of course, in the process of firing a clay pot, sometimes cracks form in the, in the clay, and a dishonest potter would take wax and fill in the crack of the pot. And then he would sell that pot in the market as a perfect pot. And of course, you wouldn't know that you got gypped until you got home and put some heat on it and that wax melted away and now you discover the crack and you got ripped off. And so honest potters would begin to sell their pots as sincere this is a sincere pot. It's without wax, meaning what you see is what you get. This pot is the real deal. It's sincere. Romans tells us love must be sincere. I, I need to acknowledge, friends, here's sincere love. I need to acknowledge this, that on my best day, like on the day of my life when I'm like right there with Jesus, like man, in my best moments, my love fails miserably and falls far short of the standard that God has set. I love my wife, and yet I have hurt her time and time and time again in 32 years of marriage. I love my family, and yet I have failed them over and over and over again. I have been rude, I have been selfish, I've been a jerk. Like, no matter how you, you say, oh, Doug, you're just being rough on yourself. No, 
No, I'm being sincere. I'm telling you that on my best day, my love is faulty. On my best day. And then on my worst day, can you imagine? You see, it's when I begin to recognize that. Now, you see, there, there, love must be sincere. Now, I'm in a position to hate what's evil, cling to what's good. It's when I hate the evil in me first that I can begin to identify it elsewhere. It's when I recognize that I have failed that I can begin to deal with failure. I, I like how, I like how um, Pastor Flick Grizel puts it. Flick is the pastor at, at the uh, Rockville Church of the Nazarene, and just I uh, love uh, Flick a lot. But here's, what, here's one of Flick's statements. He says, we're all just bozos on this bus. <laughs> He's right. I love that, that line. When, when I recognize they were just bozos on this bus, that they were, we're, we're all, you know, this is my mess. This is your mess. Now we can begin to work on this together, you see. Let's drop the self-righteousness. Let's drop the, the, the justifications of our own actions. And, and let's, let's come to the table with our failures, seek the forgiveness of Jesus together, and begin to take steps to move forward. Like that's how this works. Friends, this principle, it applies across the board in all of our relationships some of you husbands and wives right now, the truth is you haven't come together in years because you're both self-righteous. Oh, oh, we wouldn't put it that way. We, we um, as Christians, you know, we're really good at, at candy coating it. So, so, so what we really say is this. We say, oh, Lord, Lord, I, I just pray that you would open his eyes. Open his eyes to see where he needs to grow, and what needs to change. Just open his eyes, Lord. That's a self-righteous prayer. <laughs> Do you see that? Oh, yeah, we can't decode it. We dress it up, but it's still just pride, masked. And I'm telling you, it's ruining your marriage. The first step to stopping the argument that's been going on for years in your home is to let go of the self-righteousness. Ask Jesus, would you reveal the wrongs in my heart? Try my heart, test my thoughts, know my anxious thoughts, right? See if there's any unclean way in me. Would you? And then you bring that to the table and now you're starting healing in your marriage and in your relationship. We gotta be able to take responsibility. So a number of years ago, our son, when he was a little guy, he, uh, he, uh, he and his best buddy used to like to play with their airsoft guns. And um, they played army in the woods and you know, the, the kind of a boy thing. I know that most women totally don't understand that. Why, why do guys like to shoot at each other? But we kind of do. So they were playing army, and that was just a big thing they were into. And, and an airsoft gun, they, uh, they shoot these little BB, these rubber, rubber plastic BBs, and, and that's just how they played. Well, Caston was, uh, was borrowing his friend's gun uh, for a period of time, and while he was borrowing that gun, it broke, or it got broken. We still don't know to this day. 
So uh, his par- as his parents, his mother and I, we, we were insisting, now you're going to need to buy your friend a new gun. You've got to replace that. <laughs> the protesting began, and the self-righteousness came out. Here it is. But, but, but I, didn't really, it, it, it did, I didn't really break it. It just, it just broke. It's not my fault. Yeah, we know it's not your fault, but that's not the point. It broke under your care, therefore you're responsible to replace it. Yeah, 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 but, 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 but it was an accident. We, we are sure it was. We're not saying you did it on purpose, but it happened under your care, and now you're responsible to make it right. Yeah, but he, it's his old gun. It was half broke anyway. He didn't even like it. He doesn't want, I don't need to, that doesn't matter. What matters is it broke under your care, and now you're responsible to do something about it, to make it right. Oh, we went round and round and round on that one, and eventually his mother and I prevailed, and he bought his friend a replacement, and he learned, I hope, a very valuable lesson about personal responsibility. It was a tough one. It was a tough one. Friends, uh, when we, um, when we can see our lives in light of the sacrificial gift of Jesus, it gives us the freedom to be able to take personal responsibility. I, I can start then by owning the mess because there's a solution before I even begin. Does that make sense? See, here's the solution. Jesus is the solution. And so I already have that in place, so now I can honestly take a look at the mess because the solution is there before I even start. And now, and now that I have that, I can take responsibility for what's been done, and I can say, you know, here I am. Let's, let's start moving from here. Um, something else came out on Friday night at this panel um, that we had that I thought was, um, there were so many things, by the way, so many things. But one of the things that was said, uh, that one of the panelists said was that slavery in the United States, it began in about 1619. And I haven't fact-checked that. I believe you say in the truth. But that it started in 1619. And here we are in 2020, so that's about 400 years. And This person noted that the Israelites were slaves in Egypt for 400 years before God stepped in and set them free. And we don't know why in God's sovereignty that he chose to wait 400 years to set them free. Like, why didn't God do it at year 300? There's no explanation. He's God. He does what he does on his timetable. But here we are, this person kind of put that connection together, and here we are now at this unique place in the United States, 400 years of history into this slavery issue. And while some progress has been made, there's a lot of stuff that's not been done. And he believes that we're at this critical moment and juncture in the history of the world and in the history of our own nation where here we are, this generation called for such a time as this, we are now given the opportunity to see this be rectified, to see something done about this that honors the Lord. And when he said that, I just, I don't know, I felt like, wow, first scared, 
And then second, in awe that God would give us this responsibility at this time and humbled by the opportunity as well. You know, uh, here we are. Here we are. And I happen to believe with all my heart that the Church of Jesus Christ is uniquely positioned to do something about this. That, that actually the government does not hold the solution on this one, friends. It doesn't. The church holds the solution on this. And that it's time now for the Church of Jesus Christ to bring the message that we have to bear in this world. And, and part of that is, is demonstrating to the world the freedom that we have uh, that we don't need to be self-righteous. I don't need to justify myself. Like, I can totally call myself out. Why? Because I have a Savior who's forgiven me, and he set me free. And if God can reconcile me with himself, then he can reconcile us with one another. Like, that is the powerful message that we get to bring to the world at this time. So, how do you stop an argument? Well, let's drop the self-righteousness. Boy, that takes a lot of guts. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> but I found that at work in my own marriage, in my home, and I can tell you that, that my flesh personally, I'll just give you a testimony, my flesh personally, my first response is self-righteousness. That's my first response. Whenever I'm confronted about something, my first response is, yeah, but, and, and I give all the justifications. Let me tell you, that's a very lonely road. You might be right, but you're alone. You might be right, but you're destroying things in the process. The first step to healing is humility. Drop the self-righteousness. Come to the table together. As two imperfect people seeking the solution through Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father God, I thank you so much for the power of your word. Oh, Lord, thank you that in your sovereignty you have chosen to place us here at such a time as this. And Lord, as your people, it is our desire to do it well, to do it right, to do it with grace, humility, wisdom. It's our desire to do it that way, Lord. It's our desire to honor you, God, in all that we do and say, oh Lord, we give ourselves to you, submitting ourselves to you, and we ask God that you would use us as you see fit. We pray this in Jesus' holy name, amen. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.org.